Hi, Angela. Hi, Catherine. I have a very important question for you. Okay. What percentage of your brain has been occupied with childcare concerns since your first daughter was born six years ago? <laughs> uh, I've never attached a number to it. Um, <laughs> I think it's fluctuating, but I, it's constant. Constant. Well, I'll say this. I started a new job when my daughter was eight weeks old. Woof. So, yeah. and I agreed to taking that job when she was one week old. Oh. So I've been thinking about it from the beginning, from when I was bouncing on a ball on Percocet. <laughs> this is The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. Every mother works, now more than ever. And we're back for another great season of challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. And we are in no danger of running out of material. 2020, what a mother. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. And I'm your co-host, Angela Garbez. And this is season three of The Double Shift. Today, we are going to talk about the childcare crisis that's impacting all parts of the country. Parents are facing huge challenges around finding affordable care that they feel is safe, and providers are facing tons of new safety requirements, under-enrollment, and increased operating costs. The Center for American Progress says, without significant federal investment, half that is half of America's childcare capacity is at risk for permanent closure. Of course, childcare being hard to find and too expensive is not a new problem. Right. This has been going on for a long time. Parents are left to shoulder the costs alone and figure out all the logistics. We've basically decided that kids ages five and up have a right to publicly funded education, and most kids under five deserve no public support. I know. And when you look at it like that, it's like all of a sudden this magic number of five, you really see how it makes absolutely no sense that we're doing it this way. No sense. No <laughs> sense no whatsoever. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the pandemic has pushed this long, simmering, basically kind of a hidden problem into the mainstream national political conversation. Now, because wealthier and more privileged people who are more easily able to outsource the work of childcare can't do that anymore, many more people are reckoning with the fundamental flaw of the system. And they're talking about it. Yeah, I really feel like what we're experiencing right now is like a democratization of the problem. Like, there was a segment of people who were able to buy their way out of this problem, and that has really shrunk. And so many people are no longer able to buy their way out of this problem, and we're going to be feeling the effects of this for many, many years to come, I think. But sort of the larger thing is that this is absolutely having a huge effect on mothers being forced out of the workforce. A recent report came out that 865,000 women dropped out, please note my sarcastic air quotes around the phrase dropout, of the workforce between August and September of 2020, compared to 
216,000 men. And the reason I'm so sarcastic about dropped out is that I really feel like this is an example of women being forced out, thrown off a building out of their jobs because they are given no choices and no support. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make. The language we use matters, and it's sort of default to say that people drop out, but that's not an accurate picture of what's going on. 865,000 is a staggering number. In one month. (laughs) I know, it's just (laughs) insane. I mean, but... I wish that I could say I was surprised. Right. You know, like, I wish I could say that that was shocking to me. Yeah. It's not. I mean, it hits. It hits hard, but it's not surprising. I mean, I know for me, my ability to work is 100% directly tied to whether or not I have childcare. Yep. And I'm totally, I'm with you. I'm in the same boat. And I hear this from so many mothers. But in terms of solutions, often the narrative is about either, like, we need a a huge federal bailout from Congress, which I completely support, but that bailout is basically to keep the not very good system we have in place even, like, functional, which is important. But that's really only one part of the story. And I think that there's other solutions that are really worth talking about. Um, And the story we're bringing you today shows the power of local organizing and very grassroots efforts to tackle the underlying issues that the pandemic has really heightened and come up with some actual permanent solutions to this massive structural problem, not just the immediate bailout, crisis mode, Band-Aid responses. And just one other thing I want to add is, to be clear, high-quality, affordable, accessible childcare is directly tied to mothers' participation in the workforce and really the public sphere at all. And access to childcare directly impacts mothers' lifetime earnings and career advancement. And this is not just a what is good for kids issue. This is equally about mothers in my mind. Yes. Just yes. <laughs> so today we are going to be talking about universal pre-K. In case listeners are not familiar, the universal pre-K movement is all about making preschool and pre-kindergarten accessible to every child in the United States, funded in part by government, so it's either free to families or on a sliding scale. The key part is access is not based on a family's ability to pay. Yep. Really important. And it's also about raising the pay of childcare workers, who are often women of color and mothers themselves. So women of color are 20% of the U.S. population, but they are 40% of all childcare workers. So this is about creating a more valued and stable workforce. Childcare workers are more likely to live in poverty than those in other professions and are among the country's lowest paid workers. And I think it's shameful Especially when you consider how people talk about children as the most prized or precious people, right? Yep, yep, yep. So we are entrusting childcare workers with that which we say is the most valuable, our kids' health and safety, but somehow we can't pay them a living wage. Right. And they make less than people working some of the most menial jobs in the country. And obviously all of those people should be paid a living wage, but it's just especially glaring to think about us just seeing how little this is valued. Yeah. But right now, to try and... So let's put a happy spin on things. <laughs> you <know>? Okay. <laughs> right now, there is some exciting momentum on this issue. And we're reporting on one effort to get real, comprehensive, universal preschool that also increases worker pay in Portland, Oregon. Yep. 
a measure to provide free preschool for all three- and four-year-olds in Multnomah County, which includes Portland, is on the ballot right now. And we'll tell you the awesome story about how it got there later in the episode. Now, this measure, often referred to as Preschool for All, has backing from a very broad coalition, not just parents and childcare workers. And it would expand access in part by helping existing providers, many of which are small businesses, increase their capacity and underwrite their costs. We're going to talk with Angie Garcia, the owner of a preschool and early childhood program called Escuela Viva, which has two locations in Portland. Angie has seen how a lack of major public investment in childcare infrastructure, infrastructure that many say needs to be built and maintained, just like roads and water lines, how that underinvestment created a system that, even in the before times, was on the brink. And then the pandemic hit, and it became absolutely abundantly clear that our already broken childcare system was crumbling. And the only way to prevent that would be to have a universal system. Angie is 47 years old and identifies as Latina. She has four children, two biological and two stepkids, and they are between middle school and college age. But way before she was even a grown-up herself, she knew she wanted to work with kids. Anyone in my family, and I come from a very large family, will tell you that I was infatuated with children. I wanted to hold the babies at three. Sit me on the bed, put the baby in my lap, show me how to change a diaper, show me how to feed them, anything involving children, and I wanted to be doing it. I just knew children were always going to be an important part of my life. So as I grew, you know, and I went to high school, I decided one of my very first jobs was going to be at a daycare center. So at 16, had a car, I applied and got a job. And from that point on, up until graduate school, I worked in a childcare center. And there were things that I thought were lovely about it. And there were things that I thought, hmm, that doesn't seem quite right. And when I decided to go into graduate school, my first year, my practicum was at a local Head Start. And I thought it was a beautiful model yet I believed it segregated based on economics. And I felt that that sort of model should exist across all of our communities and that all children should have this place to go to school regardless of their ability to pay. Head Start programs, for people who aren't familiar, cultivate school readiness in low-income children from infancy to age five, and they're free. Angie wished that that could be the norm for every kid. When her daughter was around two, Angie wanted to find a high-quality program that incorporated elements of Reggio Emilia, a play-based learning model, but also a bilingual Spanish program. She couldn't find anything like it in her area, so she decided to start her own. That was 16 years ago. She'd completed her social work degree, but she didn't have a blueprint for how to run a learning center, how to run a business. And Angie quickly realized the problems with the for-profit private model. Many families couldn't pay the tuition required to run a quality program. And to her, that was an equity issue. It became this conundrum. Parents were paying very high tuition 
And it was, there's just never enough to pay staff what they deserve to be paid. I've done the job. I did it for the first 10 years. And I know how demanding that role is. And I also understand how critical the role is for preparing children for kindergarten. I've always thought to myself, if it's that critical and that important, why are we not paying more? And the reality is, is that I've crunched all the numbers. There's just no way to do it without some sort of government or tax to help supplement. And my goal has always been to pay teachers closer to what a kindergarten teacher would be paid. That's been the goal. So many people who work in preschool, in early childhood education, and in child care centers are women of color who are parents themselves. And so obviously that applies to you. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about how that plays out in your experience at Escuela Viva. It is a, an industry that, ha- that has traditionally been women and women of color. And it, it's hard not to believe that because it is an industry that is women and women of color, that there isn't the same level of importance placed on that work. And I think the pandemic is changing that. I think people are starting to say, wait a minute, the work that they do is important. For example, I don't know how many people could do what my teachers do every day without a, a lot of training to be doing the hard work of of providing social and emotional experiences for children that help them grow and develop. And on top of it, do all of that under the rigorous demands of rules and regulations around COVID-19. It is a demanding responsibility and there's no extra funds to help us pay them what their, what their value is. That's the struggle. That's, that's the really frustrating part for me. Could you share with listeners, like, what is it like right now with, um, you know, show, uh, explain to us like a day in the life of a, of one of your teachers that what kind of activities are they doing and what kind of extra precautions are they having to fit in? And what does that look like in terms of when you think about how hard they're working? What are the moments that you think about? Think about when you go out with your own children and you want to make sure they're social distancing and make sure they've got their masks on and make sure that they're not touching, oh, hand sanitizer or like, oh, don't touch that. Like that's, that's somebody else has touched that. Think of all the the stress that you carry when you do that and multiply that by, for the infants and toddlers, it's a four to one ratio. For my uh, young preschoolers, it's a five to one ratio. And for my preschool and pre-Kers, it's a 10 to one ratio. So imagine the level of responsibility you feel to those, those little humans in your care wanting to make sure that number one, you're not bringing anything to them that's going to make them sick. And that if God forbid any of them were sick, that they aren't going to get each other sick. It is, it is, it's more than just about the activities. It's more than just all the extra cleaning that goes into what they do every day, because it's a lot of cleaning. 
it's the constant stress and worry about ensuring that everybody is healthy and that they're doing it the right way. And I do mean they feel the sense of like, there's a right way to do it and I've got to get it done right. It's an awesome responsibility. I just wondered if you could tell us, when you were describing, you know, your your big family, it felt familiar to me. I am was born here, first generation Filipino American. But I wondered if you could just tell me about um, your your specific cultural background, if you're comfortable sharing that with us. Absolutely. It's one of uh, my favorite things to talk about. Uh, my grandparents are uh, born and raised in the United States. My grandfather had a, a not even a second a second uh, grade education, and my grandmother had even less. And they raised 12 children. They s- lived in Fabens, Texas, which is very close to the border. And my grandfather was a migrant worker, so he would travel wherever there was work. And somebody in Jervis, Oregon, liked him and offered him a foreman's job. And my grandfather drove all of his children in a truck he and my grandmother, and they lived in Jervis, and that is where they raised all the 12 of their children. And I believe that being raised in part by my grandparents and watching them grow this beautiful family that they had so much pride in, it gave me a foundation, an understanding of how race can play an important part in the life that you live. I've watched and heard so many stories of my uncles talking about racial discrimination, the way they were treated. I grew up going to a very white uh, junior high, actually elementary through high school. And being a Latina was something I was embarrassed of. And it took a lifetime to get to that place to say, I am a Mexican-American and I am proud and I have given that gift to my children and Escuela Viva is the gift that I give to my community in terms of a love of culture and a love of language. And I can think of no greater gift. And I know my grandparents, they're no longer with us, that they look down And they're proud of what I've created because it's more than just, you know, my children. Like I I started this for my children, but the gift just, it just keeps giving. And that's me. That's my culture. And I am so thankful that I can say that with the level of pride that I have. We'll be right back with more from Angie Garcia and how people like Angie got preschool for all on the 2020 ballot in Portland, Oregon. So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. 
Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We are building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. We're back. I'm Katherine Goldstein here with co-host Angela Garbez, and we've been talking with the owner of two early childhood learning programs in Portland, Oregon, Angie Garcia, about the effort that has been in the works for years to get free universal pre-K to children in Multnomah County, which includes the city of Portland. Before the pandemic, two different groups, Preschool for All and Up Now, had been building coalitions and working to get universal pre-K on the ballot and in front of voters for the 2020 election. The proposed measure called Measure 26214 I know, really sexy name, <laughs> would be funded by a 1.5% marginal tax increase on households making over $200,000 per year with the goal of covering all three- and four-year-olds in the county by 2030. One important aspect of this story is how laying groundwork and sticking with these issues to see them through is how you make change. It doesn't happen overnight. Even though a lot of work happened during the pandemic, Organizers never would have gotten on the ballot this year if they just started working on it in March. Preschool for All started working on this years ago, doing research and figuring out who has access and who doesn't have access to preschool. 
And this is the first time that the Portland chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America has tried to get anything on the ballot. And they did it with the support of a broad coalition. Labor unions, education, and community organizations were all involved. They actually lost a bunch of time to gather signatures due to legal challenges. So they had a very small window, I think it was around a month, during a pandemic to get 22,000 signatures. Wow. Many people thought it wouldn't be possible, understandably. But they didn't give up. They had highly motivated and creative volunteers. One of their strategies was to get people to sign at the nightly Black Lives Matter protests. I'm sure listeners are aware that there have been a lot of protests in Portland this year. And they actually gathered 32,000 signatures, more than enough to get the measure on the ballot. So that is such a good point about changing laws and I think and what it actually takes to get something new on the ballot. And I think a lot of times when people realize that we want to change laws or, you know, make a new policy or get something on the ballot, we we need it like yesterday, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think most most significant changes that happen happen because People have been working on it and and talking about it and yelling about it for decades. Yes. I think that that's just, that's just something that's really important to remember that to make change, like, you have to stick with it. Of course, an acute crisis can also be very galvanizing yes, for people. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So in this case, uh, that's what's happening. Angie has two early childhood learning centers, both of which shut down in March and then reopened in April as emergency child care providers. I'm a part of a group of providers. And when the pandemic hit, everybody's scrambling, trying to understand like what's happening. How is this going to impact my business? When will we be open again? Okay, there's a stimulus package. Okay, now there's PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. Like, how is that going to work? So we all worked together. We networked to share information. Uh, to support one another through that very confusing time. And as we moved through that time and it became clear that some providers were going to get the money, other providers didn't, we just all looked at each other and said, this is, this is madness. Why is something so critical and so important? Why are we having to fight so hard to stay alive? And I think we all knew how fragile our childcare system and our preschool, early childhood education system is and has been, but we kind of all held it together, right? We, we, we were survivors. Women, we, we work hard, but this is something you can't just work hard and make better. There's just too many pieces that aren't, that aren't working well that we will not survive if we don't just not put band-aids, you know, in, in, in my field in social work, we talk a lot about how sometimes social workers, we feel like we're band-aid, like we put band-aids everywhere. This pandemic is, is showing us all that we can't put band-aids on this anymore. We need an actual long-term fix. Yeah, it seems like the pandemic um, in for the childcare sector and all the, you know, women entrepreneurs who run these small businesses it's really shown that this is not a problem where if you just work a little harder, you can solve your way out of, or um, that this problem is really systemic. And it's not about trying to 
figure it out just for your one daycare because the problem is is so much bigger than that. It sounds like you all had some pretty real and difficult realizations around that with the pandemic. Absolutely. And and the beautiful thing is we all were wanting to help and support one another. And it just became one more thing on our to-do list. And we just we just don't have time support one another the way we want to, that meaningful, thoughtful, intentional way, because we're just so busy. And and I'm tired of saying I'm busy. I don't know about the two of you, but I'm tired of somebody asking, how are you? Oh, I'm busy. How are things going? Oh, they're hard. I just want to take those two words out of my vocabulary because it isn't just that it's hard. This is our reality. And we just can't afford to give up. We just can't. Our communities are relying on us. So obviously you're talking to, um, you're preaching to the converted here. We all believe very strongly <laughs> in the need for affordable childcare for everyone and accessible to all. But I'm just wondering, what would you say to someone who said, you know, why should I care about this? Why should I vote for this or pay more taxes? Because I don't have kids or my kids are grown. Why does it matter to everyone? That's a beautiful question. It's one that I I like to speak to as often as I can. As a social worker, one of the things that we learned early on and throughout our education and also I've experienced working in the field is that prevention is one of the most effective strategies when you're talking about investing tax dollars. $1, the research says, $1 invested in a measure like preschool for all pays dividends in in and around $9. So your return is $9 in higher graduation, high school graduation rates, less access to social services down the road. There's just so much that happens when a preschooler learns all of those important social emotional skills Whereas students that do not have access to preschool, oftentimes they are labeled early on as problematic children or children with behavioral challenges. And oftentimes because they haven't had access to uh, preschool and a teacher who's like, wait a minute, maybe this child has a, has a reading challenge and they're able to early identify that early on and provide services, then they're ready to go into kindergarten and already have had those early services that will help them be prepared. And I'll say this over and over again, you know, the United States, sometimes we want to see that immediate impact and we forget that you have to invest early for those later payoffs. And children who go to school and feel good about themselves, like going to school, they stay in school, they're less likely to get into trouble, more likely to go to college, and more likely to be a contributor in their community in the future. And that's what I think we can all agree upon. Makes for a healthier community. Have you ever changed anyone's mind? Has there ever been a person that you <laughs> didn't think was going to be interested in this that you were able to convince what that, that universal pre-K was an awesome idea? I don't know. But what I can say is when I start talking about it, people stop and actually listen. So, you know, like 
truthfully, I'm not a Trump supporter. And, you know, you'll get into conversations with people like, I'm never going to convince a true Trump supporter to not be a Trump supporter. But when I talk about preschool for all or universal childcare, people listen, regardless of their political affiliation. And I think it might be something that could unite our parties. If we just said, let's focus, let's not focus on all those things that we don't agree on. Let's focus on this one endeavor because I don't think anybody disagrees with the importance of quality preschool and that everyone should have access to to childcare regardless of your ability to pay. I love that idea that there are some still some ideas in our society that people can agree on and are uniting factors. That's I choose to believe a good, that. Good and, thing and the, to remember. <laughs> but I can just say whenever I talk about it, people just listen. I'm like, oh, okay. And 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 you know, sometimes people people will listen, but like, oh, well, I don't know. I don't ever get that. Well, I love the idea too, just that people are willing to listen, right? So maybe their mind isn't changed immediately, right? But maybe it comes up again and, you know, you've planted a seed, right? I think that's an important step. There's sort of, these things take time. And I like the idea that just, just that you know that people are really listening to you. That does make a difference, whether it's whether it shows up in the way we, you know, want it to immediately, you know, it's kind of that long-term work, just just bringing it up. Absolutely. It's taken me 16 years to see this measure get on uh, a ballot. And here we are. I- I'll do, I'd do it for another 16 years. <laughs> Gladly. So, um, Andy, I have, a, I have one, uh, one last question for you, which is that a lot of people around the country are very focused both on the crisis of the pandemic and all the fallout around that and issues of racial injustice right now. How do you see this childcare effort as tied to those other things that are happening? Um, some people might think childcare is less important than some of these other issues that are happening, but do you see them as being related? I believe that they are related because... I can't change people's ideas or thoughts about racism today, but how I can have an impact is through the children. And so if we are providing high quality preschool that has a diverse population in that in each of those classrooms, that is how we make the change. I, I don't know that I can make any changes in my lifetime, but I think that we could make those changes for those three and four-year-olds. Absolutely. That's Angie Garcia, executive director and owner of Escuela Viva. I, I really love Angie's point about how much this work is also about creating the world we want to see for future generations. Uh, we talked about that in the first episode, Angela. Yeah, and it's something that I definitely think about a lot. You know, how this ballot initiative is, it's a first step. Right. Right. Like, so this is what they're doing to get funding to to even make a po- program like this possible. And, you know, there are a lot of ideas on how to make it happen. And if it does happen, and I really hope it does, <laughs> the process will take years. Yep. They don't know yet exactly how it'll be implemented and rolled out. Um, I do know that in the plan, campaign organizers have definitely prioritized placing low-income 
and underserved kids first, which is important. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I really believe that people who live with and are closest to problems, you know, whether that's childcare and preschool or maternal health disparities or immigration issues, the people closest to the problems are also closest to the solutions. Yep. <laughs> but unfortunately, as we both know, they are often the people furthest from the power to make change. Right. So I just, it's really my hope that the families who need this program the most and providers like Angie who work with those families can be involved in shaping the policy and the contours of what this program is. I totally agree. And I think that's such a good point. And I also think it's really important to have the leadership on, uh, you know, for an effort like universal pre-K that's coming from both childcare providers, business owners, educators, and other concerned citizens, and not just parents with young children. I think it's really important to have so many different people in the community involved because it affects the whole community. Like, that is the whole yeah. idea. <laughs> um it's not just about, like, we need to do something nice for parents with young children. It's about so much more than that. And I think it's also important to note that this effort is, like, this is a long-term solution for childcare providers, but it is actually not a short-term solution. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm-hmm. this, like this, is, this is aiming to help children, actually, who have not yet been born. <laughs> but there's also the reality of, of what, what needs to happen really today to stabilize our childcare system because of the pandemic. So Angie is definitely concerned about the finances of her programs. They are under-enrolled because of the pandemic. That could be because um, people are con- have health concerns and aren't comfortable sending their kids to, se- you know, out of the house or a parent has lost a job and they're not able to afford it or they ha- already have a parent at home. And so Angie says if they don't get any government support soon— She is going to have to raise tuition in January, which obviously right now is a really hard time for people's childcare costs to be going up. And that will just give her a runway until September 2021. Like, this just, I really want to underscore, like, for someone like Angie, who is so dedicated and has put her heart and soul into making this program for 16 years, like, her future is not certain in terms of you know, how, what the school is going to look like if she doesn't get sort of immediate support at the federal level. Yeah. And I think it's really important to remember that there are many providers who are in much more dire straits than Angie and who have just never even been able to reopen since closing in March. Right. So there are many parts to the childcare funding issue right now. There are many stories that we're not hearing. Right. Definitely. And one of the reasons I think there hasn't been enough movement on childcare issues in the past is that when people are going through it, it's such an intense time. And when you have really little kids, like, and you're trying to work, you are overwhelmed, like, period. There's, you yeah, are— And your world yeah. feels really small. Right. Right? It's work and then it's home with your kids. Yeah. And you have so little bandwidth to, you know, be focusing on anything else. And we haven't always been able to widen the conversation to convince people who don't have young kids that this is something worth fighting for. Yeah, it's really indicative of our overall mentality as a country, which is every person for themselves. You are on your own. You have to make it work, figure it out, hustle your way out of it. Um, It's... 
it's not sustainable. Um, and it's it's always putting the onus on people who are stretched really thin to advocate for themselves. So as I said in the beginning of the show about how stable childcare isn't just good for children, it's also really important for women's careers and earnings and gender equity in the workplace. But even if you just don't care about any of that stuff, like even if that doesn't speak to you at all, just from a cold numbers perspective, this is just a great way for society to spend money. Like if I'm just going to make the capitalist argument here. <laughs> I was going to, I always love the sort of naked appeal to like the uh, capitalists, yeah. the hardcore capitalists. <laughs> just the, it just makes good sense. Just the men with the money. I'm speaking directly to you. <laughs> So Double Shifters, at the time of our recording, we do not know if the Preschool for All ballot measure will pass in Multnomah County, with the election just a few days away. We actually can't wait to find out either. So if you want to find out if it passes, be sure you're following The Double Shift on Instagram at The Double Shift or sign up for the newsletter at thedoubleshift.com. And we will update you on what happens. For our members-only bonus content this week, Angela and I talk about our own childcare woes, our experiences or lack of experience with universal pre-K for our older kids, and what it could mean for our younger ones, and how we'll support it even if we never get to directly benefit from it. I hope you'll become a member of The Double Shift to hear it. Your monthly contributions mean so much to our ability to make this show. We are scrappy, grant-funded, and mom-run. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our co-host this season is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipour. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Music is by Travis Morrison. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Schreckel. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson, Eric Newsom, and Lauren smith Brody. We're funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and Acton Family Giving. And you, our members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift. <laughs>